Hello, and welcome to the Weird Waves podcast. My name is Taylor, and this is episode 15. This week's episode, we're talking to Kim Churchill. He is a recording artist, singer, songwriter, and of course, surfer from Australia. And right now, he is traveling around Canada touring. Um, If you want to check out the link in our description, that will have more information about where his next shows are, and maybe you can check him out if you're in the Canadian vicinity. In this episode, we talk to him about tour life, about having breakfast on tour. We talk about the recording and the music industry, which was really interesting, and also talk about surfing all different sorts of waves. So I really hope that you guys enjoy this episode. How's it going? Very well. Very well indeed. (laughs) So where are you at right now? So I'm currently in an Airbnb off Queen Street West uh, in Toronto. And yeah, I've been here for a week. And I just started actually exploring the lake waves while I've been here, which has been pretty cool as well. So it's been a pretty nice week in Toronto. That's awesome. And this is, you're on tour right now, is that correct? Yeah, well, yeah, I kind of, I sort of live in this perpetual state of on tour. Um, in fact, it's the closest to not being on tour I've had in a while because I've had a week and a half off. Um, but the, yeah, I have a Canadian tour which starts, when does that start? Well, it kind of starts tonight. Um, I, ha- I have a show tonight here in Toronto, but it's not my my main show. So the, 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 the start of my the official start of my tour is uh, tomorrow night in a place called St. Catharines. Cool. And so how did you maybe talk me through how you got started into music? Okay, so I, I come from a small town on the far south coast of New South Wales, Australia. Uh, it's a little town called Marimbula. And when I was five or six years old, my my mum basically just brought home a guitar one day. Um, and <clears throat> I didn't know at the time, but she was sort of hoping that myself or my sister would, would kind of become interested in it. But she brought it home because she was getting some lessons herself. Uh, and I just thought it was ridiculously exciting. I, it's It's funny because I wouldn't have thought as a five-year-old, I would have been particularly excited by a guitar. But I was for whatever reason and and I was sort of you know really excited about having the guitar in the house and and mum basically sort of said well if you want I can give you I can give you the guitar lesson after I I get get it myself on a Wednesday so she would come home from her guitar lesson and give me the same one she'd just got Um, and I just really took to it it was just something that immediately was kind of I was really interested in and really passionate about and and after a while, mum stopped getting the guitar lessons and just kind of let me continue. Um, and I started going to the guitar lessons instead. Um, and, yeah, I just, I really began to identify myself as a, as a young kid, as the kind of the kid with the guitar at school. There was the kid that was good at handball and the, the kid that was into horse riding and 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 I was the kid that, that was into guitar and I was sort of carried around everywhere and and do lots of extra lessons and that kind of thing. Um, and then as I sort of grew up, well, my dad was pretty good at um, finding cheeky little ways to kind of keep me on track, I guess, in terms of progressing with my skills and ability with the guitar. He did things like um, 
he sort of asked me to start playing classical guitar and said, I'll, I'll buy you a classical guitar. Mm. Um, if you start playing, if you start sitting your classical guitar exams and I'll also buy you an electric guitar. And I was pretty excited by that idea. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the good thing is like, because it was such a small town, there wasn't really access to any really nice instruments. I had no idea what like proper, proper kind of classical and electric guitars cost. So there was just a really basic music store with kind of very cheap instruments. So it was sort of, it was possible for dad to kind of go out and, and um, buy me like a very cheap nylon string guitar, which was the equivalent of a, of a classical guitar <clears throat> and sort of a beginner sort of start as electric guitar so it's, but you know for me being seven or eight years old I was just so excited by the idea of getting two guitars it was it was <laughs> phenomenal you know and it was I think it was around my birthday as well so it was just like that was just wild and then I, so I started playing classical guitar and sitting classical guitar exams and that although didn't seem very cool to me at the time um as I got older you know I think I I think I just enjoyed the it's not a competitive nature, but I guess the sort of the structured nature of sitting the guitar exams and, and receiving <clears throat> a result for the exam. Um, and so I sort of progressed through um, different, different stages of classical guitar with, with, with a general interest in the way that I was progressing and the way that I was moving forward. Um, and then around the same time, yeah, I guess by the time I sort of finished up with classical guitar, I was probably 16 or 17. And around that time, I was starting to become really obsessed with Bob Dylan. And there was also some buskers in Australia that were like, YouTube was just kind of coming along then. So I was like, I had access to all of these amazing um, sort of videos and stuff within YouTube. And that was leading me to to discover all of these kind of, yeah, quite sort of, unknown buskers that all of a sudden had this new online sort of platform that they could share things with and I was beginning to kind of get into busking and get into the the kind of whole um the whole street culture in Australia um, um just for a second can you explain what busking is for people because that's not a very common North American term Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So <clears throat> busking is, is basically performing on the street with your guitar case out for um, people to throw change. And I, it's one of the oldest forms of, um, of performing music that, that exists. You know, people have been uh, playing on the street with a, a cup out for change or something for, for thousands of years. And um, the, thing that, the thing that really worked for me with busking and the thing I think that that especially the, the busking scene in Australia did differently was artists were able to sort of print their own music onto a CD or onto a cassette tape or something like that. Um, and they would uh, sell that CD while they were busking, which made it a hell of a lot more lucrative. Um, it basically meant that you could make a decent career out of, out of busking because if you, if you set up and you played music for an hour and you sold you know, five to 10 CDs at 20 bucks a pop, then you would just make $200 or something. So that was, um, that really inspired the whole busking culture of Australia. I mean, I can only imagine it was happening the same in the US and the same in Canada and stuff. Um, but yeah. Do you, need, of, do you need a license for that? 
Well, you do in certain places. There's, there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of rules around it. Um, <clears throat> but what I was mainly doing down on the far south coast, um, around Marimbula, Marimbula is kind of a, it's a really small town. It's probably three or 4,000 people. And within sort of 45 minutes to an hour's drive of Marimbula, there'd be another 15 to 20 towns kind of of similar size, you know, tucked into little, little sort of coves and little, um, uh, as the, as the coastline sort of moved, moved around, there were lots of little beaches and lots of little river mouths and, and, um, and each little place was kind of a small town in itself and a lot of these towns had like farmers markets and stuff that they would they would have on the weekends they'd have like a you know every 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 third sunday of the month uh Pambula would have a farmers market and every every saturday there was a big market in a town called Candelo which was um fairly nearby and and so that was kind of mainly where i was busking was at these markets and you basically just had to sweet talk the the committee of the market and uh, explain to them that, you know, you were going to bring something to the market. There was going to be, there's going to be nice music in a corner and all you needed was some power. So you could set up a little, a little speaker. And, and um, so I didn't need a license as long as I was kind of sticking to those markets. And, and that was plenty of busking for me, really. That was sort of six hours a day for three days a week or something, which is, it's quite a lot of performance time. That's interesting. And so you were influenced by buskers on YouTube when you were around 16. And were you continuing, were you focusing mainly on busking or? I mean, I always sort of saw it as something that I would do for a time. Um, okay. I didn't want to do it forever. I had bigger dreams and aspirations than um, just playing on the street. Uh, but it, it was really working for me. Also, there was the far south coast of New South Wales is such a small and um, it, it's kind of fairly cut off from reality in terms of now that I'm older and I've traveled a lot and, and um, seen a bit more I've sort of noticed it's 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 fairly cut off from reality and in, in that sense there's not a lot of the music scene down there so it was kind of <clears throat> it was good in some ways because I was able to uh, start a career in music without kind of any idea of how difficult that was supposed to be um, and there wasn't much of a music scene at the same time that would kind of made it a bit like the wild wild west you know and I was able to just make it up as I went along and sort of creating these um these busking sessions at markets was was uh, just a fantastic way to kind of create a music scene where there where there really wasn't much of one. That's great. And so at this point, you're roughly sixteen to eighteen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I sort of yeah, sixteen to eighteen was the main the years where busking was my predominant kind of performance opportunities. You know, I had get a couple of weddings. Um, I started kind of talking to a lot of pubs and even like little restaurants and stuff about, um, you know, having having me play in the corner. Um, a couple of cool things happened. This my, one of my friend's fathers sort of used to play like covers in the corner of a couple of restaurants in the area, and he sort of invited me along to sort of 
play, you know, just do some little solos in the back of what he was playing and accompany him. Um, and he would give me like, you know, 50 bucks an hour or something, which was pretty decent. If we did a three hour gig and he'd, he'd give me 150 bucks, um, you know, that was a lot better than the money I was making washing dishes in the kitchen or something. So, so <laughs> and I was playing music, which was, which was kind of my, my ultimate goal. So that, that stuff kind of happened, which was really cool. Um, at the markets, I met this, this guy who owned like a coffee van uh, and he made like, you know, cappuccinos and lattes and things like that for people. And he, he basically invited me to any market that he was at. He basically said, listen, I have a good relationship with these markets. Uh, I have power at every market. You can plug into my van. Oh. Um, it's great for my business because he was, he was really popular at that time. I guess, you know, it was, what was that, like sort of 2007, 2006, 2007. So, like, everybody was just really jumping on the espresso train and everybody wanted a sort of a, a fancy, you know, cappuccino and, and latte and that kind of thing. So, so he was, like, really popular. He used to have big lines and people used to get a bit frustrated by how long they'd be waiting in line. So he kind of liked the fact that if I was there, everybody would be, entertained sort of by this busker and there was something that would stop them from feeling as though you know they were wasting their precious market adventuring time by by standing in line for a coffee um so that that started kind of taking me a bit further away from marimbula as well because he would go sort of you know um probably like three to five hours up and down the coast and um and yeah that was all <clears throat> that was also f- fifteen to eighteen. Mm-hmm. And did you have a recorded, like, I don't know if it was a demo or did you have an album that you were passing out or selling as well when you were busking? Or yeah, how, how did that work? Yeah, I sort of got got onto that one straight away because I realized like, okay, busking's not bad. You can make, you know, I mean, if 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 every five to ten minutes you're getting sort of, I don't know um three to six dollars um it's pretty good money um but what i realized was i I just needed some kind of product to sell and so yeah i mean the first thing that i sold was this ridiculous it was a it was a dvd (laughs) of um of three of three videos of me playing the guitar basically um so it's like three videos of me performing pieces of music. I think two of them were covers. Um, and I made 50 of them and I sold them for $10 each. Um, and, and then when I was, when I was, what was this? I think it was 18. I, I recorded my first album. Um, and then I started selling that. And then sort of the next few years were, were sort of, I guess, pushing that album um on the far south coast and and playing yeah playing little markets but also like by that time I sort of had quite a few pubs up and down the coast that would book me for gigs and even people were sort of coming out to see me play um and I was starting to get booked for the it was the first few little festivals that I I managed to get booked for which were like really small folk festivals um sort of up and down the east coast um and, you know, I was finishing high school at the same time, so I was able to, I basically built a, a bed and a home in the back of a camper van and I started 
traveling a lot further, um, started getting gigs, you know, um, north of Sydney and, and down around Melbourne. And, oh, did I get to Melbourne? That was probably later I got to Melbourne. Canberra, Canberra, which is Australia's wonderful capital. Mm-hmm. Um, a funny place to play music, but there was a bit of a scene there that I was able to break into. And yeah, sort of lots of small folk festivals that started booking me and stuff like that. So, so that, that's when I guess I'd made the kind of cheeky transition from what was essentially a, a, um, a sort of, um, what do you call it? Um, cottage industry, um, kind of market busker sort of career into a you know being properly booked for festivals and and having an album um I think I even got some distribution around then so the album was sort of popping up in in a few shops and stuff like that and and um god I think if if I look at it now like it's 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 a terrifying transition to try and make but I think at the time I just had no idea I was even making it you know and I just um managed to somehow sneak across into reality and when you were performing, were you performing all original stuff or a mixture of covers and original stuff? Mm, yeah, it was a mixture of covers and original. I mean, I definitely, the, the pubs that I had convinced to let me play, um, they figured out pretty quickly that people wanted covers. I mean, they they were also booking things like my friend's dad, who who was who would set up and play four hours of covers, just um, back-to-back hits, Hotel California, Breakfast at Tiffany's, um, you know, everything that that would get sort of people from around the age of sort of 40 to 60 that were drinking beers at the pub on a Sunday to dance and to have a few more drinks and to kind of create a bit of a vibe. Um, so I did go into that scene pretty heavily because it was – the only way to um, convince the pubs to to book me. Um, so there was a, there was a few years there, I guess like sort of seventeen to nineteen or something, um, when you know I was constantly so battling a bit with with venues to let me play originals, um, and I was starting to gravitate towards pubs that didn't mind if I threw in a few of my own songs. Um, but once I started getting booked for those little folk festivals and stuff like that, um, they wanted originals. They wanted you to be a, they wanted you to be an artist in your own right and have your own music and have your own, um, identity sort of thing. And so the covers were, I guess, pretty quickly phased out. I mean, I still had some classical pieces of music that were quite good at the folk festivals. Um, and there were still a few, uh, covers that were, um, really like big parts of my set you know um I used to play a song called Ocean by John Butler which was like you know such an exciting piece of music to me and 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 that was still a really important part of my set that was how I would showcase what I did and that kind of thing so but but I was phasing out the covers very quickly and and um and you know kind of moving on from from that style of performing other people's music as quickly as I could and when you record an album, do you have like a manager that gets you in contact with a record 
producing agency. I guess I just have no idea how that works. <laughs> so that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <clears throat> well, in the beginning, no. In the beginning, I was just lucky there was this guy that had a recording studio down on the far south coast who was he was he was he had just started when I was about 15 or 16. He'd just moved down to the far south coast and was setting up his recording studio. Um and so the first album, like he did me some ridiculous deal. I was basically in the studio for three days. I took in as many instruments and um, percussive things as I could. And we basically just, yeah, just, just recorded. I think I put 17 songs down in three days. It was ridiculous. And it sounds terrible. I haven't heard it in years, but <laughs> <laughs> it was just so bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and then as my career has moved on, um, yeah, I got I got management and the, the process of, of picking a producer and a, a recording studio can be um, kind of approached in lots of different ways. But often a producer or an artist will find the the uh, will find their match. So a producer would find me, or I would find a producer that I liked. Um, management would work to secure some kind of deal for recording the album and and the studio time and all of that kind of thing. Um, once, I signed to, once I signed record deals, um, that was different again. The record labels would have a lot more involvement in picking the studios, picking the producers, um, having their say in kind of how the music was sounding, all of that kind of stuff, um, and they would pay the bills. So that was kind of different again, you know, once you've got major record labels there and they're, they're paying for everything. Um, you know, they want to organise it all and they want to have much more of a say. Um, so you kind of nearly just become a bit more of a gun for hire, you know. They sort of tell, mm -hmm. say, well, we want you to work with this producer and these are the days you're going to go in and, and um, you know, we're looking for this kind of song or whatever. And and that was kind of fun, to be honest. It was nice. I mean, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the most control I've ever had over my music, but it was kind of nice to be... Um, to be utilised more than the one that's in control. Um, and, you know, I made some cool music uh, working with major record labels. In the end, it became a bit too stressful and just the, the, um, the, the lack of autonomy that I had over my own music and the eventual sort of feelings and, and commitment that I had to my own career kind of dwindled a little bit because I just felt that it wasn't, it wasn't really me, so I sort of moved away from it. But it was fun for a time. So I guess there are a few of the ways that you can approach um, setting up the, the whole recording of the album. And is it in, how important is it to kind of vibe with the producer and those people? Because now this is going to sound really stupid probably, but like I just picture like those old rock and roll movies, you know, where like the band like doesn't like the producer and they're trying to do something like <laughs> that they don't like, you know what I'm saying? So like, Absolutely. yeah, I mean, I mean, it is like that. It is, it is 100% like that. Those, those old kind of rock and roll docos and stuff. Um, they are honest in, in, in what they show, which is like one artists, we're all, we're all kind of, I don't want to say we're egotistical, but we all have an element of narcissism and sort of self. <clears throat> we're very focused on ourselves and on our own art. And 
and within that, you know, we need we we sort of have to look at things in a very delicate, fragile way. And if there's not a a vibe um, in inverted commas with the with the producer, that's a big deal, you know, because the the moments of magic that you're looking for they're so esoteric and they're so hard to to pin down and understand. And it can be it can be ridiculous little things like it can be the lighting, it can be um, maybe a producer will put on a bunch of lava lamps and that might be inspiring you know it's it's like it's so ridiculous but it really becomes like that where where you you're working on on the vibe of the place and, and the vibe between you and the producer and when that vibe is kind of happening and uh both you and the producer are kind of easily able to ent enter states of flow and kind of forget about the rest of the world and get really immersed in in the creation of of the music then then that's when good things get done um so yeah i mean it's spot on like if, if a band is sitting there saying we're not vibing with this producer um that's problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i guess i feel a little less silly now that it is actually like that <laughs> yeah it, it is, and, you know like even producers would feel silly when they were saying things like oh you know i have a bit of cool lighting like we could lights and candles that's probably just silly like you could do what you want and everything but <clears throat> I mean everybody feels a bit silly but the, the truth is that um you know you have to do what you have to do to create the the environment that allows you to to get lost in it all so it sounds silly but it's legit <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so are you without a label right now are you independent um, I, I am independent. I'm signed to a distribution label called AWOL, um, which kind of suits me. You know, like a few years ago, I was signed to Warner Music in Australia, Universal Music in Europe, Atlantic Records in England, um, Cadence Records in North America. Yeah, I just had record deals just coming out of my ears. And um, as I say, like I did really enjoy it. It was nice. But yeah, I took a step back to basically just working with an independent label um, that allowed they, they sort of give me an advance they give me a little bit of money to help me towards the recording of everything and putting together with my manager a team of people that can get the music out there that, and that kind of thing but in general they sort of basically just perform the day-to-day -day, uh, requirements of, a, of distribution and and making sure that your music is available for the people that want to buy it and you know, other than that, they sort of leave you to to run your career however you want. Um, and that just suits me a little bit better. Yeah, well, I would imagine it would be pretty hard to manage a bunch of different labels in a bunch of different places. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's, um, yeah, they're just, major record labels are just, they're, they're, they're the, it's a confusing time in the music industry as well with streaming kind of coming on board so powerfully and and um people's the way that people consume music changing so much um yeah record labels are struggling to find where they fit and to find how they can continue to be um relevant you know when it when when some artist from you know some Californian city with a bunch of tattoos on his face can kind of record a, a, a rap song on his on his um, computer in his bedroom and put it on 
SoundCloud and Spotify and become, you know, a, an enormous sort of success and being in the charts and and all of that. Um, that's very dangerous for the for the bureaucracy of the music industry because you know they're, they're all kind of circumnavigated to a degree and um it stresses them out i mean it's great it's don't get me wrong i'm not saying it's a bad thing i think it's awesome i think that the, the quicker that a listener and an artist can be connected the better and the less people that are in there trying to um kind of get, have their say in how these two people are going to essentially be connected um, the better because they're they're basically trying to make money out of the process and it's it's not necessary. Um, if I was on the street and I was playing music and somebody walked by and they heard it, um, that's a that's a you know very pure kind of simple example of how an artist is connected to a listener. Um, then a record label will come in and sh and sort of explain to you that there needs to be sort of fifteen different processes in between those two people to really make it hit home and to really make it have an effect and to really become a big success and reach, you know, millions of people and all of that. But, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time in music because they're not that necessary anymore. And they're trying to find ways to prove and show that they're, they're, they're necessary, but they also need to make money in that time. Otherwise they'll, they'll go bankrupt. So yeah, it's a, it's tricky. Navigating a bunch of different record labels is tricky because they have a lot on their plate in terms of just even surviving. And what, if you don't mind me asking, because everything is changing, what is your main source of revenue? Is it touring? Is it streaming? Is it outright purchases, merch? Yeah, it's touring. It's touring and, um, and the merch that you can sell while you're on tour. Mm. Streaming's, you know, streaming's reasonable, but when you sign to record labels, and I still most of my albums are still within record deals. Uh, I'm free as an artist to do what I want and release music, but the albums that I release through record labels will still be licensed to them for years and years and years. And so, I don't know enough about it to go trying to sort of spout out my knowledge, but streaming is trying to put quite a lot of the money that they make back to the artist. Um, Apple Music and Spotify are, are decent at that, but there's so many different platforms in between when Spotify go, there's the money for that artist, and when the artist actually sees it, it kind mm. of... And I think that record labels are probably taking a little bit more than their fair share in that situation at that time. So... Streaming could be good, and I think it'll move in the direction of being good. I think there, we have seen some, like, very gentle steps in the right direction to um, artists receiving, like, a at least a reasonable percentage of their income from streaming. I mean, predominantly at the moment, though, yeah, it, it is touring. And I, I don't mind that, to be honest. I think it's kind of good because we were always meant to be sort of traveling minstrels. I mean, I come from a busking background, so so I'm comfortable with it. Whereas, I don't know, if you ask, um, I don't know, Madonna or Anthony Kiedis or somebody what they think about having to play 300 shows a year, they might have a very different opinion. But I, I kind of feel like musicians, we, would, we were always meant to kind of bumble around and, 
and and sort of live day to day and and perform music for people um as we went you know this this idea that you can sit in a mansion and record an album every four or five years um and then go on a three-month tour of the world and then do nothing again for for four years like i think that was that was very sort of late 90s early 2000s and we're no longer royalty and i I don't think that's such a bad thing well i think that it's becoming more popular to go to a 25 dollars show versus an 150 dollars show and Mm. i think that the um experience that you get from the $25 show or the $10 or the $15 show is much more like you're saying it's much more personal um and I also think this is just my personal opinion I have no facts for this but you're more likely to say to your friends like hey I'm going to see this artist they're really good if you have nothing to do it's 20 bucks do you want to come with me yes so I think it's kind of a more natural way to discover new music and new people. Yeah, 100%. I agree. And and it also it, it just allows the music industry to sort of really flourish because if you have 80,000 people spending $150 on Adele, um, you know, that's, that there's, there's hundreds, maybe thousands of artists that all of those people could be going to see at a $20 ticket. You know, they could be going to seven shows for $20, seven completely different kinds of shows, um, different kinds of music. And, and all of those bands will, will be able to keep going. I mean, it's just crazy the amount of bands that are incredible and they roll through a city and they sell 15 tickets or something. And, and, and they can't make enough money to continue. So I, I, I think it's a good direction for music to go, you know what I mean? Um, having said that, I mean, there's still still massive stadiums. Uh, you know, most most ticket buyers are still going to see things like Ed Sheeran or, um, uh, I don't know, you know, kind of massive, massive stadium shows. And, and, and I think, you know, that's part of the way things are as well. <laughs> And do you organize your own tours? You said that you're like perpetually on tour, which I think is pretty cool. So do you organize all of that for yourself? Um, well, that kind of goes, there's quite a lot of structure to that as well. So <laughs> okay. I, I will, myself and my manager will kind of discuss when and where we think I should be performing. Um, there will be taking into account at the same time what our booking agents say and basically in every country I have a different booking agent in Canada even I have two different booking agents one for Quebec and one for um, Anglo-Canada and they will have plans and ideas and ways that they think uh, it will be successful for me to tour in a country so we'll be backing and forthing with them about what seems to work and what they think will work and what we think will work They'll also be getting opportunities and offers and things like that. So festivals will be calling up and inquiring as to whether I'm available. So they'll be putting that kind of stuff on, on the table. Um, and then with all of that information and through kind of consistent discussions about when and where 
I Should Be Places, um, which also kind of ties into like what music I'm releasing, uh, where I am in a, in a release cycle and that kind of thing. Um, we kind of lock down, um, you know, what shows I'm actually going to play. And of course, like we look at money and how much money we're going to be able to make and whether or not um, touring opportunities make sense financially. And, and that all comes into play as well. Um, and, and that's basically the that's basically the nuts and bolts of it all. And do you typically stay in Airbnbs and things like that? Well, I'm trying to move away from Airbnb, to be honest, because I think they're um, a dangerous contributor to some of the housing crises that are happening in cities around the world. But I have done, yeah. And, and probably in hotels more than Airbnbs, just because when I have a crew on the road, um, like a sound engineer, stage technician, lighting technician, those kind of people, um, they normally expect a hotel room um, at the end of the day. You know, you're mm-hmm. to travel very long distances, very, very far away from their families and their homes and stuff like that. So getting hotel rooms for them on a nightly basis is kind of important. So still probably more hotels, but um, up until about a year ago when I started to sort of, I don't know, sense maybe the slightly destructive nature of every second building becoming a an Airbnb, um, we were starting to use Airbnbs more and more because they were kind of cool as well, you know. I mean, especially in in Europe, that you sort of end up staying in this really funky kind of house with with sort of beautiful gardens and four or five bedrooms, and and um, and that was kind of better than a hotel. You know, it was more of an experience. Um, but then, you know, I mean, predominantly over the last ten years, I've been living in the back of camper vans. Um, it's only really since I started doing bigger tours and having crew and stuff that I moved out of the camper vans and into you know, tour buses and stuff. But um, I still, my favourite way of living is is out of the back of a van. And what's your van set up like? <laughs> um, well, I've had, I've had quite a few different ones. Um, normally pretty basic. I mean, the tricky thing when you play music as well is you just need so much room for musical equipment that you can't kind of go too far down the whole van life um, kind of path. But I've been working on one in Australia the last six months, which I think is really amazing. It's it's um, kind of a collaboration with a friend of mine who has a company called Undercover Creative, and they do like – they do sort of everything from kind of bespoke furniture and interior and industrial designing through to um, – like kind of flat pack van items that you can buy and and um, construct yourself, almost like an IKEA product or something. Oh. Um, yeah, and and so he and I have been working on my van back in Australia, and we've kind of created this like this stage that basically slides out of the side of the van um, and has a solar powered PA system in it as well. So. Um, oh. that's pretty cool so the van I have I, I sort of sleep on the, the bed is up above the stage um, there's about a, a meter of room where all the gear is packed onto and then that whole stage with all of the equipment on it kind of slides out of the side door you sort of take all the equipment off the stage put down the legs set up the equipment on the stage and can essentially play a show out of the, the side of the van which which I really love um, 
and then around the back there's kind of a single bed which is also this enormous drawer which has like all the kitchen stuff and cooking stuff um and a couple of really cool old old sets of um drawers and shelves and stuff um so it's a pretty cool little setup actually it's it's gonna be done by the end of this year i think sounds incredible yeah it does doesn't it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it really does i like I can picture it as well, which is really cool. Um, I I like seeing the vans with the solar panels on top. I think that's pretty neat. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's come so far. You can. It's funny. I've been learning the last year. You really don't need electricity for that much of your life. Um, depending no. on your life, I mean, I've made a real point of kind of getting quite off the grid with the way I live. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, with some solar panels and a second battery, you know, you need to probably charge your phone or your device or your laptop or whatever. Um, keep some stuff cold for cooking uh, and at night have some light. Um, and that's basically as, as many things as I've found you need electricity for at the, at the crux of it. So solar panels are very doable. And do you have, like, a home base? Kind of. Yeah, I do. I mean, I've been paying rent. I've been living with some friends in a city called Newcastle, which is a couple of hours north of Sydney. Um, oh, but it's just getting silly. I'm never there. Um, <laughs> I was my attempt at sort of putting down roots a few years ago, and, and it didn't work out. So I'm sort of, yeah, I'm, I'm back just living day to day. I mean, this year alone i've sort of spent time in um south africa indonesia um north america england and europe um quite a lot in australia but not necessarily in newcastle so i found myself really kind of catching the travel bug again and especially for surfing in particular um so yeah the home base thing is is sort of walking off into the sunset as we speak i think and how does the visa process work when you're traveling for work? Is it classified under like a work visa or is it an entertainment visa or how, how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, every country is different. Um, I'm pretty lucky for now in Europe and England because I have my mom's English and I have oh. English citizenship. So I have an English passport, which kind of solves things in that part of the world. Um, Canada is a different kettle of fish but as long as a promoter is booking my show so the other part of the whole booking gigs process that I forgot to mention was the booking agent will then discuss and make deals with a promoter and a promoter is the person that is taking the chance kind of on the venues and collecting the ticket sales and that sort of thing so as long as there's a within Canada as long as there's a promoter that is um uh booking you for the shows then essentially you are being hired or you are being uh you're being brought over by an internal company and it's that internal company which is going to make the money out of the process of you coming over so you kind of don't need a working visa for that uh, you still need like a pretty dense um immigration document um that they can look through and make sure that everything's fine and if they start going digging then um if they really want to pick things apart they can create issues but it's kind of got it down to a pretty pretty good system for Canada 
Um, the U.S. is is really tricky, and it's part of the reason that I haven't played much in the U.S. in the last four or five years. Is the, the you need a you need a performance visa there, um, a working visa, and uh, you need a processing company to process it for you. Uh, it takes quite a while to get that across the line, and a lot of money. So the you you need enough incentive and enough gigs and enough of a reason to go to the US to commit to the process of securing the visa um, and the amount of money that it costs to secure it. So it's kind of stopped me from coming to the US nearly as much as I would like to because I used to come a, a bit more. Um, but yeah, the visa processes can be, they can range from like really simple and easy to, to incredibly complicated and expensive. What is your favorite thing about being on tour? Hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it's the thing that immediately just jumps up in my head and dances around is is going out for breakfast. Um, ah. It just sounds so silly, but but I I really enjoy that part of the day. Um, going out for breakfast. If I have good people on the road. It's also the main opportunity I have to catch up with friends on tour as well, because the gigs themselves, um, most of my friends have realized at this point that coming to a gig is just not an, an, a very good opportunity to actually catch up um, because I'm essentially working, you know, it's like anybody going to somebody work and trying to catch up with them. It's like, it's really nice to see you, but I've got to do this, 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 and this. Um, so often, yeah, we kind of get up an hour before we have to leave uh, somebody in the crew, my sound engineer, Swan, she's really amazing at finding good breakfast restaurants to go to and we'll go out and have breakfast and, and I'll invite some friends down who that I didn't have much of a chance to see the night before or something and we'll have a bit of a catch up and, you know, sort of say our goodbyes in the car park or something and that's a really, that's a, that's a part of the touring day that I really, really love. Um, other than that, it's kind of, it's, I mean, the gigs are wonderful. The gigs are an incredible experience, but they become the norm. And I just don't think there's a way around that. I mean, after your 20th show, um, it's, it's just a real part of your day. Um, it's, it's very enjoyable and it's very exciting. And it's, uh, you still get that euphoric feeling, but it's, it starts to feel a bit more like a job. Um, and there's just no way around that. I think it just happens with anything. If you do it, if you do it on a day-to-day -day basis, it sort of becomes, um, a, a little bit more, uh, common, a little bit less exciting. So the gigs are there and, and they're fun and they're generating an income and it's the opportunity to play music. Um, but it's, it's all of the little nuances and it's the little things that happen in each town that that are interesting and unique and different, which really stand out to me um, as time goes on. So like you might have somebody to gig sort of say like, hey, have you ever been snowshoeing, you know, in the back country behind these mountains? Like it's really, really cool. Like if you want to go tomorrow, I can take you for an hour or two or something. And then maybe the next day we're lucky and we don't have to leave until mid-afternoon or something. So all of a sudden we're snowshoeing in the back country of some little town in, in the Rockies or something, you know, that kind of thing happens. Or, um, I mean, even in the last few days, like being able to surf in on the lake in, in Toronto has been, you know, these kind of little things happen and, and you, you connect with little communities and the places that you go and have these 
wild and odd little experiences and and, and that is also like just a, a massive kick you know that's what gives you the variety and the spice and the kind of the it gives you the little buzz and the little glint in your eye that helps you kind of continue on the tour when things might have become a bit um a bit a, a bit exhausting and what's the hardest part i think the hardest part of touring is one you, you get no sense of of schedule really um, you, you, you don't get decent sleep. You don't get normal hours of sleep. You might get, you might get three nights in a row where you only have four hours to sleep, um, or three hours to sleep. And then all of a sudden you have a day off and you're trying to catch up on like 12, 13 hours sleep. So you just try to sleep that entire time. Um, th there's very little autonomy. So I think a lot of the things that make up a happy life are like, those little mindful processes of autonomy that, that give you a sense of control in your own life, like cooking your own meals, uh, washing, washing your clothes, doing the dishes, all of these little, little things, tidying up your desk, making your bed, all that kind of stuff. None of that exists on tour. Um, it's very rare that you can cook yourself a meal. I mean, it pretty much doesn't happen. Um, doing your washing is like, something that oh my god if you get the opportunity to do that you have a day off and you're going to spend half the day at the laundromat and you're thrilled to do so but like that's that's a treat in itself um you know you're not doing a lot of those little things that just give you a, a sense of control in your own life so things can become really kind of um you can feel very adrift um you can feel very a, a real lack of kind of being anchored to anything um and yeah, and the sleep, the sleep, I mean, you become quite manic because you just, in general, you don't get enough sleep. And that's just the, that's just the, the way things are for being on tour. Um, there are so many variables and so many things that need to happen in a day. The one thing that will inevitably end up being affected by the um, course of all of the um, ways everything else is unfolded is you will end up with less time to sleep, basically. Um, you something will happen at sound check and an amp will break or something like that. So the so you need to, somebody to bring in an amplifier and then in the morning you're going to have to drop that off back at their house, which is 20 minutes out of the way, and then you're going to have to pick up a new amplifier, which is 45 minutes out of the way. So you kind of have to add an extra two hours to lobby call to make sure that there's enough time to do those things. So all of a sudden, you know, instead of leaving at nine, you have to leave at seven. And the night before, you know, you kind of got to bed at about, you got to the hotel at three or something. So all of a sudden, like the way that touring days play out, it's just very common that the thing that ends up taking the hit is the amount of time you have to sleep each night. And, and I don't know, that, that has a pretty solid effect on your mental health after a certain amount of time. It's uh, not getting enough sleep and not having a regular sleep pattern um, I'd say that's pretty much the hardest thing about it, um, is, you know, not turning into a psycho. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't sound like too much of a psycho to me, so it seems like you got it handled or at least you have a schedule. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty good at not turning into a psycho. I, I think I've got it down to an art form. 
That would be a good book, actually. I should write a book about touring and call it How to Not Turn Into a Psycho. I think that I think people that don't tour would love to read that book too. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a it's a funny way of life. It really is. It's you kind of exist in this bubble as well. You know, you you um you 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 don't really touch the the grounds of reality very often. You kind of float around in this weird bubble with the few people that are on tour with you and. And I mean, one of the big issues is actually there's a lot of drug and alcohol use in the music industry, and that's because you exist in this odd little alternate reality. Um, and as I say, like a lot of those little mindful tasks that that we have in our day to day lives, which give us a sense of balance and a sense of autonomy over our own lives, we kind of seek that comfort in in drugs and alcohol. And and um, I mean, if you've played a gig, say. I played a gig to 1,500 people. It was really exciting. Everybody was having an amazing time. Their energy was huge. You came off stage. Maybe you did like a meet and greet or you signed some merchandise at the merch table. So you spent another hour talking to people that were just brimming with enthusiasm, just overflowing with enthusiasm for you and for your music and for the the time that everybody's having coming together. Um and then you may maybe spend half an hour packing up the gear and loading the car, and then you get to the hotel and you have three hours to sleep, and you're just wired. You're absolutely wired. You're overflowing with all of that enthusiasm that people are giving you, and the excitement of the evening, and and everything. And you you lie down in bed and you just go, "What the fuck am I going to do?" You know, I've had, I don't have three hours to sleep before we get up and do a twenty hour day. Um, and so a, a lot of a lot of artists end up you know, having half a bottle of whiskey during the meet and greet. So they're relatively drunk by the time they, they, their head hits the pillow or they smoke weed or they do, you know, um, gnarlier drugs kind of, it, it all goes with it too well. And I think that's one of the real dangers as well. And, and I mean, finding little mindful ways to live a balanced and decent sort of healthy existence on tour is, is, it's much more risky than, than, than a normal kind of life. Well, it sounds like you've stayed away from that by the way that you're talking about it. Um, yeah, I haven't. I haven't. Like, I've, I think, yeah, I've got a pretty good handle on it. I mean, I'm 29 now, so I've been, I've been touring and playing music for sort of about 12 years. And, um, yeah, I mean, I haven't had any any massive issues with drugs or alcohol. I think I've been a bit too hypersensitive to it. If I've even had the most minute of issues, then it's a big deal and I need to sort it out. Um, so, yeah, I guess I've been pretty lucky, but I've seen a lot of it. Let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about surfing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... You live in Australia. You live near the coast of Australia. Is that that's right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Marimbula was on the coast. Is on the coast. Uh, Newcastle's on the coast as well. Basically, everything in Australia is on the coast. So that works out. <laughs> <laughs> and did you grow up surfing, or how did that come about? Yeah, it was one of the main. It was one of the main things that a young a young person would do in Marimbula. Um, there was surfing, um, AFL, which is like Australian League football, and um, uh, rugby union. 
were the main things uh, and surfing was something that um that most people did um and yeah I, I mean I got involved in that when I was probably 10 or 11 I think I mean everybody's hanging out at the beach anyway you know it's it's very much a it's very much a beach culture there's in Marimbula alone there's probably four or five different beaches that people would choose to go to um probably four three or four of those have surf so if if you're not surfing by the time you're sort of 11 or 12 you're at least kind of bodyboarding and splashing around in the water and hanging out at the beach it was sort of very much a, a part of the culture down there and are there a lot of sharks in that area <laughs> um <laughs> it's not too bad uh there were yeah i mean there were cases of shark attacks and stuff but i mean it's just so 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 rare even if one is seen um you know the the chance that it's actually going to attack you is is just so so rare so it's like yeah the the, the far south coast is a little bit sharky um but <laughs> you know it's in, in comparison to other parts of australia it's not too bad um and i mean the, the amount of issues that anybody's had with a shark in that area are, um just so minimal that that you know the pretty much non-existent do you typically bring a board with you when you're touring no i i wish i could i'd like to find a way to but um in australia i have my van and so i have a couple of boards in there but basically touring is nearly not surfing time um i'm trying to figure out ways to rectify that um and like for me, like connecting with surfers in different communities and different parts of the world is really important. So because I mean, like renting surfing gear is out of control. Like if I think about what I would have the money to do on a day off on tour, um, you know, I'd be trying to spend like under $100. I'd be trying to spend under $50, to be honest, um, on whatever activity I have time to do on a day off on tour. And um God, renting wetsuits and surfboards is just crazy. It's yeah. out of control. So, like, connecting with surfing communities and and different surfers in different areas, it can be like, yeah, I got a suit, I got a board, I'm, I can take you to this spot or this spot or something. That's really important. That's basically the only way I get to surf if I'm on tour. Um, unless I'm in Australia, in which case I have my van, I have some boards. Every bloody town in Australia is on the beach anyway, so there's more of it. <laughs> to to yeah just kind of squeeze the surf in here and there and are you a short border or a long border oh kind of all of it to be honest um i have been longboarding a fair bit more in the last few years um i've been really enjoying it being kind of getting rid of the leg rope and and sort of get, getting it down to a real art form um i haven't been riding like i've kind of moved away from standard thrusters and things like that I've kind of grown bored of that style of surfing I probably I probably spent half my time on a on a long board sort of around a nine four nine six and then the other half of my time on single fins or mid-length boards um you know around sort of seven seven foot single fins that kind of thing um 
I like big twenties as well, seven, eight foot twin fins, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, alternative boards, definitely. I don't, I don't spend much time on like a six O thruster, for example, but, um, especially for surfing Indonesia and surfing bigger waves and stuff, I've been really enjoying riding, riding slightly larger single fins. Um, on my trip at sea, I took a seven foot single fin and that was just perfect for, I mean, they're big kind of gnarly waves. So like to be able to get in a little bit earlier, like you can on a single fin and spend the first half of the way just sort of setting up your bottom turn. That's, that's a really nice, that, that I really enjoyed kind of approaching Indonesia in that way. And you mentioned a little bit earlier that you were traveling a bit for surfing. Where all have you been for surfing, like for surf trips? Um, I mean, over the years, I was in a relationship for a long time and my girlfriend and I were kind of always trying to find waves that suited us both. Um, which, which meant as, as I, when that relationship ended, I kind of came to this realization. I was like, Oh my God, I have, I'm getting to my late twenties and I haven't spent much time chasing big waves. Um, I taught my girlfriend how to surf and, we would go on trips together. So we would be looking for kind of waves that, yeah, that suited us both, that were, that were kind of gave her the opportunity to um, kind of excel a little bit, but weren't like terrifying and, and um, too much. Uh, and I love surfing small waves, to be honest. I've always had a real affinity with, with small surf and kind of really milking tiny waves and stuff. So I was happy to do that. But yeah, in the last few years, I just realized that I was like, oh man, if I'm, if I'm going to really tackle bigger waves, I need to get on that because I'm in my late twenties. And if I get to my mid thirties or if I kind of move forward with a family or something like that, um, I'm going to think differently about taking, taking all of those risks. So in the last year I've started doing, and I wouldn't say I'm like some kind of, you know, big wave enthusiast or anything, but I did, had a really nice trip to um to South Africa and I sort of spent a fair bit of time at J Bay and waited for some big swells to hit there. Um Australia's great for bigger waves. There's a lot of bombies and there's a lot of um really awesome kind of reef breaks and lots of kind of secret waves that are, you know, big rocky ledges and stuff like that that I've been kind of doing surf trips with my friends to. Uh and then yeah, I went to Indonesia for seven weeks and and basically just hit um, Desert Point and Lombok and then went to G-Land, um, which was, G-Land was just ridiculously, um, intimidating. It was, it's funny, like, it's almost out of fashion, G-Land at the moment. Everybody's talking about the Mentawis and, and Sumbawa and Lakey Peak and Desert Point and Lombok and stuff, but G-Land is still a phenomenal wave. It was really full on. So I was there for a bit and then I went to, um, Nias, which is an island off of Sumatra, which has a very famous kind of big heavy right hander. Um, and then to the Mentawis and to, um, to a place called Hollow Trees mainly. I stayed on a land camp there. Um, so that was a pretty cool surf trip. Um, and then, yes, sort of some other really interesting little trips. Like when I was recording in England earlier in the year, I went and surfed in Devon a bunch which was really cool, like mainly longboarding waves and, and um, it's some really cool adventures down to like some really nice little beaches and little spots. Um, 
that, that were just really beautiful and interesting little waves that would kind of break up river mounts and stuff like that. Um, so that was a really cool trip. And then back in Australia, I sort of spent, spent about six weeks living out of the back of the camper van with my friend while, while my van was being built. Um, and we sort of hit the Great Ocean Road and, and we were mainly longboarding because that's what he's into. And we were sort of finding a lot of these secret little right-hand point breaks and little, little longboarding waves that turn on for like an hour or two around low tide. Um, and that was really fun as well. So that's kind of, they've kind of been my main trips this year. Um, oh, Vancouver Island as well. I had a really nice um, time up in Tofino, which I've been, gone to a lot over the years. But, yeah, I just I, I actually had surfed in board shorts in Tofino, which was wild. So Ooh. <laughs> and um, <laughs> went longboarding at Wick Beach in board shorts. That was pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, that's probably my main surf trips in the last year um i feel so lucky to come from australia because there's just so much to so so many places to surf there um and exploring those has been been wonderful the last year as well and do you have any surf trips planned for the future like upcoming um do i no not really <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Australia is kind of just a perpetual surf trip. The more I've travelled as well, the more I've sort of realised just, I mean, Australia is just a paradise for surfing. Um, I'd really like to go back to Central America next year. I used to go to Mexico a fair bit, um, and I'd really like to go back there. Um, I'd like to spend a good sort of six or seven weeks in Indonesia every year. Um, I think it's just, as I say, like, it's just a good time for me to be really tackling those bigger reef breaks and stuff like that. Um, I want to go to Sri Lanka as well next year. I kind of hooked up with a guy there that had a surf camp. So none of this is planned and, and God, fitting it in is going to be crazy, but there are also little, little ideas I'm planting out in the universe that may or may not come true. And what is the weirdest wave you have ever surfed? Hmm. The weirdest wave I've ever surfed. I mean, there's, a, there's a, the, the obvious ones that come to mind, like the, the river in Montreal is pretty weird. Um, I got into surfing there for a bit. Um, there's like a weird kind of tidal wave that sort of, was getting kind of stuck in this river mouth in England that I surfed once. And it was like, <clears throat> it was almost like a river wave, but it was still kind of a, a river mouth in the ocean. So it was quite big swells probably overhead, um, but more or less becoming a still wave. Um, that was a pretty weird experience. Like when you're surfing a river wave, you know, you're not going to go anywhere. You know what I mean? And the, the way that the whole setup is, you're sort of aware of the fact that you're not moving, but when you're out in the ocean and you, you paddle onto a wave and you get to a certain point of it and it just stops moving and you realize that you can just surf this thing forever in this one spot. That was a pretty cool experience. Um, and then to be honest, the other night um, when we were surfing, God, I can't remember the name of the break, but it was, 
it was right near the city of Toronto and it got dark and we just kept surfing because there was so much light from the city. It didn't matter. So we were surfing this, this wave kind of looking at the Toronto skyline um, in the dark. That was pretty trippy as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to boil it down to that sort of odd still wave in, in um, Cornwall in England and the surfing in the dark the other night in Toronto. And what did you think of the surf scene in Toronto? Well, I mean, I'm pretty used, I'm pretty new to it. Um, but like just huge levels of stoke. They're so excited. <laughs> they're so, they're f just frothing the other morning. This, um, I was in the car park with um, Antonio from the Surf the Greats surf shop. And he, he was giving a lesson and I was just there. He was lending me some gear. So I was there with him. Uh, and there was this, there was this funny guy in the car park, this bodyboarder Gordon, this older dude with a caravan. And he was like, oh man, you're not really going to get waves here this morning. Like, come with me, you know, I'm going to go to this other break. It's about an hour's drive. Like if you want to score waves, like come with me. And, um, and you know, I asked Antonio and Antonio was like, yeah, yeah, he's a good dude. Like go with him. You'll, you have a nice time and whatever. And so I went with Gordon and we, drove down the coast and it was just, he was so excited. Everybody was so excited and we got some really cool waves in this place called Oshawa. It was sort of this break wall, um, this big kind of massive, massive boat kind of in the harbour right near us. And it just, everybody was just so excited and so, um, so enthusiastic about what they're doing. Um, I really got a kick out of that, you know. I'm, I tend to be a sort of overly excitable person so that I sort of really felt at home within all of that um frenetic energy <laughs> yeah they're they're an exciting excited bunch and uh I can say we I guess because I'm a lake surfer too we we get really excited about it <laughs> yeah 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 which is good I mean it can't you sort of it sort of suits lake surfing from what I've seen as well because everything happens very quickly um mm -hmm. you need those levels of stoke and excitement one it's fucking cold so you have to you have to be throwing on that thick neoprene real quickly and getting out there and what I saw as well was like the surf will turn on for an hour or two really it seems like um you, when you get those opportunities where the wind has generated enough swell for it to be like a, a, an exciting wave, but, you know, ha has cleaned up to a degree and all of that. So like in Australia, we can just be so bloody lazy because it's like, oh, you know, it's not that good. Or like maybe when the tide gets a bit lower later or like a, all this kind of slouchy behavior. But what I loved about lake surfing was it seems like, no, we need to be there. We need to be there at this time. We need to go now. And, um, we've got to get out there and we've got to make this happen. You know what I mean? And I, I kind of like that. It's, it's, it's a more, um, it's a more enthusiastic and proactive approach than the like, Oh, you know, I'll just, I'll wait for this to happen. I'll wait for the crowd to thin out or, or um, don't look too excited about things or you might seem like you're not very cool, you know, that, <laughs> which is, that's more of the Australian approach. Well, there there's definitely a cool factor with surfing but i think on the lake because not everybody takes us seriously that we don't really take ourselves too seriously you know 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which I think I honestly think that's the key to life. Um, if you can be cheerful most of the time and not take yourself too seriously, um, you know, that's that's about as much as you can you can offer the world, really. I mean, it's it's not meant to be that serious. And surfing, especially surfing's essentially a state of play. Um, and I, yeah, I, I've I've really enjoyed that about the Toronto scene. What I've seen of the lake surfing and river surfing as well is, is um, yeah, like it's it's not so culturally indented that that people sort of feel like there's a very specific way of behaving and that nobody can jump out of their skin with excitement or anything. I think that's I think that's kind of great. And what was your big scare moment while surfing? Like your oh shit moment. Or a few moments. Um, I definitely had one in G Land. Um, the way G Land works, it kind of—I'm going to have to get going in a second as well. So I don't oh, wanna, sure. I don't want to all of a sudden be like, "Oh shit, I have five minutes to get out the door." But um, yeah, I think G Land was—it's a wave that starts at a certain height and walliness there's a part of it called um launching pad which kind of gives you like a little run in um and then it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier and there's no way off it i'm natural as well so i was on my backhand there i definitely had an oh shit moment there when i was inside a barrel and it was just getting faster and heavier and crazier and i was like oh man i need to get myself out of this thing and I'm I'm not the best backhand tube rider either so I was kind of like oh god like how do I navigate this and then I somehow sort of kind of got rolled by the wave and snapped my seven foot single fin um, and had to kind of navigate then because I was in the really heavy fast part of the wave it's called um god what's it called speedos and so the, then there's like 20 to 20 waves coming through each one with a surfer inside the barrel, um, trying to navigate their own barrel. And I'm there trying to swim around them and dunk underneath them and all that kind of stuff. And then I kind of caught the wave riding down over the reef back to the shore and then walked up and down the surf camps trying to find a board that I could rent. And I found some like piece of shit and like, tried to paddle back out and got absolutely flogged even trying to get out and I mean that was all that was that all happened within the space of an hour and that was pretty pretty tense um other than that yeah I guess just some like big swell moments when I was younger you know and god knows what those waves would look like to me now but when I was a kid I remember just feeling like there were just these mountains rolling around the point and, and uh, having moments of just paddling like buggery trying to get over something or get under something that I was certain would just kill me if it hit me um yeah so th those kind of panic moments but I think that one in G-Land probably takes cake as one of the most intimidating and scary scary moments of my surfing time and what's next for you I I've just released an EP called Forgetting and it is um, one of four EPs. Uh, it's part of a four EP collection um, that each one was recorded in a different part of the world. So the first one was recorded in Berlin 
Um, this one was recorded on Vancouver Island. And then uh, the next one was recorded in the Blue Mountains in Australia. And the, the last one was recorded in Devon in England. So I'll basically be continuing to release that material uh, over the next year. And um, yeah, just touring it, touring it all over the world. I've got a big Australian tour booked for the first half of next year and another European tour. Uh, and yeah, for the next five or six weeks, I'll be touring all over Canada. And where can people find you if they want to reach out or find your music? Um, you can Google Kim Churchill and that's sort of the mothership to everything. But my website is kimchurchill.com. Um, I mean, I'm kind of like most people at the moment. I spend most of my time on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So Instagram, I am kimchurchill1, um, the number. And yeah, that's probably the best place to find me, I'd say. Like in terms of reaching out and saying hi and stuff like that, like Instagram is probably the best place. Um, but yeah, if anybody's in Canada and wants to come to a show, uh, kimchurchill.com uh, is where there's all the info about the shows. And yeah, search Kim Churchill in Spotify and all of that and YouTube and, and uh, hopefully a picture of my face pops up. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me. Oh, you're welcome, Taylor. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm so glad this worked out. And that was episode 15. I really hope that you guys enjoyed it. Just want to thank Tom, Sarah, and Ryan who donated to the podcast. If you want to donate to the podcast, we are accepting donations at paypal.me slash weirdwavespodcast. We are also working on some cool merch, bumper stickers, magnets, potentially some t-shirts. If there's anything else that you would love to see, you can let us know on Instagram at weirdwavespodcast or send us an email at weirdwavespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and we'll see you next Monday with another episode.